1: Hello and welcome to The Bunker Daily, I'm your host Alexandre. This is an exceptional period where we have a sense of counter-terrorism risk which is immediate. There are red lights blinking. Everywhere. This is what Met Assistant Commissioner Matt Jukes, the head of National Counterterrorism Police, told the Commons Home Affairs Select Committee last week. But what is terrorism in 2023? We hear that our public infrastructure is vulnerable to large scale ransomware attacks. Is that terrorism? When someone attacks a school because women have rejected him as a sexual partner, is that terrorism? Viral deep fakes designed to terrify, Radicalize and recruit? Are they? My guest today is a professor of security studies at the War Studies Department of King's College London, founder of the International Center for the Study of Radicalization, and author of several books, including The New World Disorder How the West is Destroying Itself. Welcome to the bunker, Professor Peter Neumann. Hi, Alex. Peter, can we start with just a basic definition? Uh, before we go into whether definitions need updating, at the moment, what do we see as terrorism? So, this is
0: a long discussion, but typically yes. what we understand terrorism to be is a specific type of politically motivated violence. Hmm. And typically the purpose of terrorism is to spread fear and terror in order to intimidate a society or a government in order to achieve a political objective. That's Mm. what terrorism typically is understood to be.
1: Has that definition evolved significantly in recent years? Well, I mean, what we see today in terms
0: of terrorism on the streets has evolved the definition not so much but of course the definition has always been contentious Mm. to the point where some people say terrorism is simply violence we don't like you know that goes back to the phrase one person's terrorist is another person's freedom fighter Mm. typically the people that we like and whose objectives we approve of we wouldn't typically called terrorists the people we don't like we do call terrorists mm. so that's typically the debate that has been raging for for years and decades
1: there, there is a useful concept in the law um, um, that distinguishes at a very basic level terrorism from other violence based on what is known as the triangle of terrorism that a is doing something to b in order to coerce c entity. Is that useful at all in today's environment? Yes, it is, um,
0: because ultimately terrorism is a form of psychological warfare. And what terrorists are trying to do is that the the people they kill, uh, they are often random. Mm. Uh, They are not specific targets what they are trying to do is uh, to spread through this kind of violence a message to a wider audience. Mm. So uh, terrorism, in a sense, is a symbolic form of warfare. You're trying to intimidate a lot of people by, for example, killing a few of them, typically creating the situation where people then watch it on TVs thinking, oh, it could have been me. You know, mm-hmm. they attacked the underground, they attacked a Christmas market, they attacked random people at a festival or a Target. I could have been there, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and then a whole society becomes intimidated and it messes with their head. Essentially, you're trying to coerce a society or a government into doing whatever you're intending to do by targeting
1: essentially random people. Yeah. Yeah. Is it? Actually, useful to get bogged down in a way in these distinctions. And I ask this because occasionally I get the sense that bringing a particular activity into the counter terrorism, let's call it envelope, Mm. has become a tool for state. Entities and agencies to make sure government takes something seriously and gives them so, the budget to deal with it. Uh, and yeah. that has kind of made the definition quite flabby now, I think. Absolutely. I, I totally agree with you. Um, this is essentially
0: about the politics of counterterrorism. And uh, what we've seen, of course, since 9 11, since 2001, is that governments have built up very extensive counterterrorism machines. And politically, it's very difficult ever to get away from that, because if then, after you basically reduce the counterterrorism apparatus, a terrorist attack happens, as a politician you will be plagued. So what happens instead is that even in times when the terrorist threat is quite low, other things are rolled into counterterrorism in order to justify the continued existence Mm -hmm. of these of these bureaucracies. So, for example, um, again and again, uh, governments have tried to include organized crime um, in countering terrorism, which is definitely not terrorism. It's also something bad, but it's not terrorism. It's not yeah. countering terrorism, but it gives people that are in counterterrorism something useful to do, I guess, and uh, keeps them employed. And the government can continue to say, oh, we're countering terrorism. We're taking
1: it very seriously. So what would you say are the biggest risks that we face at the moment?
0: So until October 7th, I would have told you, The biggest risk probably comes out of that nexus between social media, conspiracy theories, QAnon supporters, um, people who are basically rejecting liberal democracy. Since 7th of October, we've seen a massive increase in Islamist or jihadist threats again. So before 7th of October, a lot of people like me would have said, The threat from jihadist terrorism is stagnating if if not declining, it is actually not what it used to be 10 years ago with so-called Islamic State and groups like that. But since 7th of October, it has come back in quite a massive way to the point where we've already had a number of attempted and successful attacks in continental Europe and apparently also in the UK. So I would say at this point in time, Um, that jihadism, again, is probably the biggest threat in terms of terrorism in the UK and probably beyond.
1: Mm. I'm going to ask a question, fully aware that it might be a very dumb one, so please Mm. be kind. Um, (laughs) Go ahead. Does heightened risk of an attack mean heightened risk to us. The reason I ask this is because it seems to me that the big attacks happen when we don't expect them, when the state's eye is a little bit off the ball, when we're maybe a little bit relaxed. The events of 7th of October in Israel is an example of that. And that actually may, we might be safer during periods of hypervigilance when actually there is a, a, a higher threat level and mm. everyone is really paying attention to this. No, I think um, to some extent you're right. Um, of course, the, the
0: point of these police chiefs telling politicians there's a high risk and telling the media there's a high risk is precisely to mobilize the resources that make Mm. it less likely for that risk to materialize. Mm. Mm. So in that sense, um, you're absolutely correct. And we should never assume that because nothing happened, there wasn't a risk in the first place. At the same time, I think there's a second dynamic that needs to be considered, which is that at this point in time, I think the threats are multiplying to such an extent that I think even... A, a highly professional counterterrorism machinery, like in the UK, may end up being overloaded, and yeah. and that there are so many people, so many new people also that need to be watched, um, that even even the very extensive resources in this country cannot cope with that. And that's exactly what we're seeing right now. We're seeing new people popping up everywhere on social media. Mm-hmm. TikTok has become. A big place where people are connecting with each other, sometimes teenagers, 15, 16-year-olds who believe they want to do something, they want to punish Israel, they want to punish the Jews or Western societies who are supporting them. And it becomes very complicated also because a lot of this happens online now. Yeah. Yeah. And whilst whilst on the street. I think the police intelligence services have a pretty good sense of what is a big risk, what is a lesser risk. Um, online, it is very difficult to say whether someone is just very loud talking a big game and then ends up not doing anything or whether someone is serious and Mm. still to to this extent and i think that is really the new element compared to 30, 40, 50 years ago it is that online social media element where it is incredibly difficult to tell whether someone who is threatening something um is actually going to do it or not, because there are literally thousands of people online every day threatening stuff, mm-hmm. but very few people of them are truly dangerous.
1: So it is a more diffuse situation now, yeah. but are there still sort of principal hubs of terrorism in the UK today? Are there organizations that are particularly active in trying to affect the landscape in this country?
0: So my hypothesis is uh, that we are seeing a sort of um, a meeting of generations. Uh, On the one hand, we do have people who became radicalized about a decade ago, who were supporters of ISIS and who in recent years haven't had much to do. In fact, many of them were quite depressed about the situation and about how the caliphate had disappeared. And they've become reactivated by what's been happening since October 7th. First time in many years, there's a cause that is worth fighting for. And some of them are coming back and some of them are very well known to police and intelligence services. And that's one group. And the second group are people who are now super active on TikTok, on Telegram, who are very, very young, sometimes teenagers for whom this event 7th of October and the aftermath is the first and decisive radicalization event. Mm. They were too young 10 years ago or even 20 years ago to even consciously um, remember 9-11 or the Syrian conflict. For them this is their 9-11. They are becoming radicalized now. And they are predominantly on social media and they are very diffuse. And it's very difficult to understand who they are because they're new, because they're very young, because we're only seeing their social media activity. So what the police is trying to do right now is to try to understand how are the old threats, the old networks, how, how are they responding? What are they doing at the same time? trying to to understand what is happening online. Are they connecting with people? What kind of new networks are emerging right now? It's a very difficult situation because it's an emerging situation.
1: The Deputy Assistant Police Commissioner Lawrence Taylor told the Commons that the police are, and I quote, acutely aware of the energizing effect the conflict could have on those Mm -hmm. with terrorist intent. I find that language quite interesting in that they're not suggesting it is somehow creating a lot of, as it were, new radicals, but that it acts as a catalyst for people who were in that space already to turn word into action, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. But, I mean, as I say, uh, as a, so there are two groups. I think that, that the second group is coming into this uh, fresh. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's the older group that are being energized. And we know this from previous events like that. It was almost exactly the same with the Syrian conflict 10 years ago, where you had social media transporting a lot of videos of people um, people being killed, babies being killed, um, people being raped, exterminated. There was talk of genocide. It was exactly like now. Yeah, yeah. And this had an incredible effect on a lot of people that were consuming that because in all forms of radicalization, and this is a really important point, what's really important to understand is a sense of existential threat um is absolutely important to mobilize energize and radicalize people if you feel that you or your people or the people you identify with are being existentially threatened Mm. and this is the case in the perception of many of these people then almost any response becomes legitimate if your people are threatened with Genocide, if someone tells you your people are being exterminated, raped, executed at mass scale, then clearly it is your responsibility to do something about mm-hmm. it. And what is the correct response to genocide? It's not writing a letter to your MP. Yep. The correct response to genocide is to do something maybe almost equally as dramatic. And the important thing about this is that. These people do not feel that they are being the aggressors. Mm. They're feeling that they are defending their people by committing acts of terrorism. These people often don't see themselves, they don't understand themselves to be the aggressors. They understand themselves as people responding to an existential threat Mm. to their people
1: they yes so it's important to have that moral shield this is self defense effectively which is interestingly what both israel and hamas are, are claiming even at a sort of yeah. state level down there at the yeah. moment that they're both acting in in defense against an entity that wants to exterminate them
0: yeah so i I've, I've been studying uh terrorism for more than 20 years in different in different situations, different contexts, um, and I have not come across many terrorists who would not see themselves as acting in self-defense, mm. as absurd as that sounds, but that's how they see themselves. Even right-wing extremists who are saying, you know, we are basically our identity as white Western Europeans is being threatened by the great replacement of yeah, populations yeah. our our identities are being exterminated, and we are now defending ourselves against that that's the it's essentially mm. the same narrative it's it's about an existential threat and responding to that
1: there seems to be a rather unhelpful Political tug of war on top of this between emphasizing the threat of radical Islamists or the rise of the far right. Yes. It seems to me that there is an attempt to ascribe one to progressive politics and the other yeah. to conservatism. Um, but I recently heard uh, Dr. Elizabeth Pearson explain the concept of reciprocal radicalization, Mm. which essentially sees those two things as very helpful to each other. They're basically recruiting, they act as recruiting and escalating tools for each other. So the broader question I wanted to ask is, does our current political polarization, our our sort of tribalism, does that also feed into this febrile situation?
0: Absolutely, and I I think, um... What Lizzie Pearson said is absolutely right. There is a sort of reciprocal or cumulative radicalization where different types of extremism uh, egg each other on. And and you can see that very clearly on the far right, who are uh, basically um, using Islamist extremists and what they say and what they do as a justification for what they are doing and vice versa. Uh, So they kind of perversely need each other, Mm. in a sense. Uh, But there's also a bigger political debate, which I often find very unhelpful. And I've observed this in a number of different countries, in the UK, but also in continental Europe, where people on different sides of political debate always argue that the other form of extremism is actually the biggest danger. So people on the left are saying right-wing extremism is the really dangerous part of extremism and we should pay more attention to it. And people on the right are saying, oh, we should look more at the Muslims and what they are doing. And the reality is, uh, looking at a lot of European Western societies of past couple of decades, there are two big strategic threats to liberal democracy on the terrorist end and that's jihadism and that's right-wing extremism. They are both significant threats and there are periods of time where one is stronger and more dangerous than the other. Mm. Um, But in the long term, I do think we need to be in a position to be able to counter both of them. And um, right now, since the 7th of October, I I would not hesitate to say jihadism is again a massive threat, but if we end up seeing terrorist attacks, it may well be that right-wing extremists feel empowered to reciprocate. And then right-wing extremism becomes a big threat again. So we need to be prepared for both. And this debate about what is the bigger threat is
1: often actually quite unhelpful because it is a politically motivated debate. Hmm. The National Intelligence Council in the States published a report, I I love how innocuously titled it it is, Global Trends 2040, it sounds like a branding document, um, (laughs) in in which it says that, for instance, an AI-assisted autonomous vehicle attack against multiple targets is theoretically possible right now. Um, How is technology changing both i guess terrorism and the fight against it
0: so uh, there is a debate amongst um, people who study this about how important uh, technology is and uh, it doesn't surprise me uh, what you just read out because people in government people in the american government in particular um as they are often are almost the better terrorists than the terrorists themselves. They have lots of ideas for what is theoretically possible. Mm. However, for two decades, people have always predicted stuff like this. Terrorism is becoming ever more complex and complicated and technology is being used, etc., etc. Yet what we have actually seen over the past decade is that terrorism has become simpler and simpler and terrorists are driving cars into crowds. They are running around with knives. How technological is that? Mm, That's mm. the bulk of attacks that we're seeing nowadays. And if you compare that to 9-11, 9-11, 20 years ago, 22 years ago, was incredibly sophisticated compared to the kind of attacks we're seeing now. So yes, of course, terrorists are adopting technology like the internet, for example. We've seen terrorists using drones, for example. we are potentially going to see terrorists using 3d printed guns because Mm -hmm. in this country it's very difficult to get hold of guns but typically the scale at which terrorists are adopting these technologies has been slower than many people in government and intelligence agencies have predicted so i'm a bit of a skeptical when it comes to technology because i think many of these terrorists many of the people involved in terrorist attacks are not actually that smart and uh, what, what isis has done over the last decade and what worked for them really well is they have dumbed down terrorism to the level of their supporters. And instead of saying to their supporters, you have to build bombs, which often they have failed to do, they have told their supporters, get a knife, sit in your car and drive into a crowd. Anyone can do that.
1: It's very simple. And that has worked. Mm. Um, Now, just to wrap things up, terrorism is really aimed at, I guess, changing behavior through fear. And there uh-huh. is a sort of popularised concept that we defeat it by not changing our behavior. I, I I find that comforting, but it feels to me a little bit like COD philosophy. It, it's like <laughs> saying I beat cyber attacks by refusing to have an up-to-date virus checker. Um, <laughs> so what is the right balance between... Feeling free, but not terrorized. If that makes sense,
0: yeah, it's a that's an ongoing debate. I I tend to agree with the statement: you shouldn't change your personal behavior because at the end of the day, the risk from terrorism uh, is still pretty low um, in all of our societies. The risk of getting killed in a terrorist attack is smaller than getting hit by lightning dying in a bathtub, I mean, there's all sorts of comparisons that have been made. And there's also no practical way or, uh, I mean, you made the comparison with the cyber security. In the case of cyber security, there is a a solution. There is a very practical way in which you can Mm. increase cyber security by downloading the latest software. In the case of terrorism, what is the practical advice? not go on the streets anymore, not leave the house anymore, um, not go to Christmas markets anymore. I mean, perhaps, but first of all, it's not certain that you will significantly reduce your risk of being exposed to terrorism because that risk is very small to begin with. And secondly, your quality of life will suffer to such an extent that perhaps it is not a trade-off worth making. What I do think uh, needs to happen is that governments need to up their game and they have increased uh, vigilance quite significantly. And yes, part of it is also monitoring and uh, things like that. Um, Clever software that allows them to discover networks, um, ways of intervening in situations that perhaps sound a little bit drastic, but that are unnecessary. And I do think all of that is necessary and it is the government's job. So I think I think the government um, needs to make sure people are safe because they need to understand, and this is my personal justification, from a liberal point of view, you know, from a liberal point of view, is absolutely necessary that acts of terrorism are being prevented because Every act of terrorism in a Western society has a dramatic polarizing effect on Mm. the political discourse. People die. That's the immediate effect. But the wider effect is that debates that are already difficult around issues like migration, multiculturalism, et cetera, et cetera, Islam, they are getting even more difficult and even more polarized. Mm. And so if you are A liberal who wants different people to live together in a society peacefully, in a free and open society peacefully, your interest must be in preventing acts of terrorism because acts of terrorism make that infinitely more difficult. So I'm, as a liberal, arguing in favor of, ironically, of a strong state in relation to counterterrorism because I want to preserve a liberal society.
1: Professor Peter Neumann, I, I could talk to you for another hour on this. Thank you so much for your thoughts. Thank you, Alex. Remember, if you get value from our work, you should support our work, and you can do so from as little as three pounds a month on the funding platform, Patreon. Just search for Bunker Podcast Patreon. You can buy Peter's new book, The New World Disorder, How the West is Destroying Itself through our affiliate bookshop link in the show notes, and you'll help fund the Bunker by earning as a small commission for every sale. Bookshop.org's fees help support independent bookshops too. I leave you with the words of Antonio Gutierrez. Clearly, the response to terrorism and violent extremism must respect human rights and comply with international law. That is not just a question of justice. It is a question of effectiveness. This is Alexandre in the bunker saying over and out. the
0: bunker was written and presented by alex andre the producer was eliza davis beard with audio production by me simon williams the managing editor is jacob jarvis the group editor is andrew harrison with music by kenny dickinson and artwork by james Parrott. the bunker is a
1: podmasters production